Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh, producer here at Realm. A new episode of Ominous Thrill is ready for your ears. It's Advice After Dark. Late night radio host Belladonna delivers extreme advice to the delighted horror of her audience until a creepy listener forces her to confront the brutal consequences of her show. Here's a preview. Welcome to my live stream, Bella. Say hello to everyone. What do you want? Click the link. Watch along. I'm not clicking links from psychos. You put that trash on the radio every night and I'm the psycho. You sound like you need help. I'm not one of your fake callers. My show is very, very real. Do you want to know what it's called? No, I don't. It's called Belladonna Gets What's Coming. Starring you. What? It's really starring me. But it's all about you. And you'd be surprised how many people want to watch you get what's coming. I called the police. They'll be here any minute. Yeah, well, we should be done before they get here. Find Ominous Thrill out now, everywhere you listen. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. I've been on the janitorial staff at Wilmoth University for four years. I told my boss she should give me a bachelor's degree in cleaning sciences. She replied with an unamused laugh and told me if it worked that way, she would have multiple PhDs. And they wouldn't do that. They'd have to pay me a lot more with those letters behind my name, she said. I suppose she was right. If I had wanted a degree, I could have completed my bachelor's in finance instead of dropping out during my junior year. The cards life dealt me do not include a college education, and that's okay. I realized it a little too late, but I'm still glad I dropped out. Do you know how many friends I have who finished their degrees and are now working as Target Associates? Okay, only two, but that's still too, too many if you ask me. And with my grades, I guarantee you I would have been stocking shelves right beside them. My coworker Steven asked to swap shifts with me on New Year's Eve. He typically cleans the English department at night after everyone's gone home. I suppose I should have been offended that he assumed I wouldn't have any New Year's plans, but he was right. I had nothing better to do and told him swapping shifts would be no problem. The English building, properly named Wilbur Hall, is one of the two original buildings that once housed the entire university before it sprawled out over the square mile it now occupies. It's a gothic-looking structure, I say with zero architectural expertise, and it has an intimidating clock above the entryway arches. The clock's long hand is probably twice as tall as me and both hands end with elaborate bulbs made of twisted metal that come to a point at the tip. They look like human hearts on stakes to me. 
When I arrived at Wilbur Hall at 7.30 on New Year's Eve, that clock was lit up from below, near the Roman numeral six, and the arms cast a shadow that stretched to the roof. A weird thought came to me that it wasn't a clock, but an enormous combination lock. It made the building look like a giant safe housing the university's most treasured secrets. I had no idea just how close to the truth that little premonition would turn out to be. My phone vibrated in my pocket shortly after I let myself into the building. I normally don't answer my phone at work, but Stephen's name showed up on the screen. Hello? I answered. He said, Hey, sorry, I forgot to tell you this before, but it's important. There's one room you'll need to clean in the basement. It's just like a small office that belongs to this professor nobody likes. He's tenured, so it's like a whole thing. Anyway, when you go downstairs, there are two doors. One should be locked, and the other is the office you need to clean. That professor is like a stickler for having everything clean, so please, please don't forget. All right, I'll take care of it, I replied. I could hear bass thumping in time on Stephen's end. I guessed he had called me from outside a club and wanted to go back in, but before I let him go, I asked, What's in the other room? No idea, Stephen replied. I've never been in there or, like, seen anyone else go in either. It's always locked and no one's ever asked me to clean it. It's probably just like one of those gross little spaces where they used to have a boiler or something. You know how those old buildings are. I assured Stephen I'd take care of the basement office, told him to have a good time, and hung up. I looked at the list of rooms and areas I had to clean and couldn't find the unfavorable professor's office. Not wanting to forget this special instruction, I headed to the basement straight away. I didn't even know Wilbur Hall had a basement, honestly. There are spiral staircases at the east and west ends of the building, and it turns out the one on the west end keeps twisting down into the ground like a gigantic drill. As Stephen described, there were two doors at the bottom of the stairs, one to the left and one directly ahead. The one on the left turned out to be the perpetually locked door. The other let me into the basement office. Professor Wells, a name I gleaned from the nameplate on his desk, was indeed a tidy man. His office had a near-perfect symmetry that might have been beautiful if it weren't so unsettling. His long desk was positioned exactly in the center of the room, with towering twin bookshelves on either side of it. The books had been arranged by size and color. Personally, I prefer to order my books and movies, mostly movies, alphabetically so I can easily find whatever I'm looking for. But this professor had a clear affinity for aesthetics over function. There were two identical chairs pushed up in front of the desk and, behind it, a small table with a handmade runner beneath two matching vases. Between the vases sat a framed degree a PhD in religious studies from Boston University. As I donned my blue latex gloves and prepared to clean, there was just one item in the office that tipped the balance toward the left. Just one thing that looked out of place. Up on top of the left bookshelf was a plastic baby doll. It rested on its side, propped up slightly by one boomerang-shaped arm. Its eyes were closed, its haphazard position and the fact that it hadn't been balanced out by another doll on the opposite bookshelf suggested the doll had been placed there hurriedly. I spritzed a rag with the dust-repelling cleaning solution I had brought down the stairs with me and got to work. Fortunately, Professor Wells wasn't much of a decorator. Most of the professors lined their desks with personal trinkets and collectibles that gathered dust on and beneath themselves. Wells didn't even have a photo of his family on his desk. 
I had just lifted a blank notepad to wipe beneath it when something struck my back and fell to the floor behind me. Surprised, I spun around, drawing back a fist as I twisted. The baby doll lay on the ground next to me. Its eyes were open now. Rather than staring straight up at the ceiling, the tiny glass marbles that represented the eyes had both rotated towards me. If it hadn't been for this disturbing detail, I might have realized that in that position, laying flat on its back, the doll's eyelids should have lolled shut. I shuddered. You might think you would have left that doll on the floor and maybe run out of the room saying screw it, but I'm willing to bet you would have actually done exactly what I did. Pick the doll up and put it back on the shelf. After all, dolls aren't alive. No, no matter how many creepy killer dolls you've seen in movies, you know they only exist in fiction. Right? So yes, I put the doll back on the shelf and resumed my job. I finished the desk and one bookshelf before acknowledging the signals from my bladder urging me to take a quick break. Whistling the tune to Blind Melon's No Rain, I went back up the spiral stairs and found the closest bathroom. It was denoted for women, but as the only human being in the building, I didn't think I would bother anyone by borrowing it for a minute. I went into the first stall, shut the door, and for some reason, I locked it. I guess the doll's staring eyes had bothered me more than I realized at the time. The university's climate initiative had required the bathroom lights be hooked up to a motion sensor. This seems like a fine idea on the surface, but whoever set the timer in the girls' bathroom was a little overzealous. I might have gotten out before the lights shut off had I utilized my fly and stood, but out of respect for the ladies, I had sat down to pee. Having to unbuckle my belt, etc., had made the deed take long enough for the lights to flicker out above me. I waved an arm over my head to turn them back on, but the sensor couldn't see me over the stall. Sucks to be you, girls, I said aloud. My voice rang in the echoey bathroom. As if in response to my voice, the lights flickered back on. I shivered at the ghostly tickle that ran up my neck as my hair stood on end. I knew my voice couldn't have triggered the lights. Something outside of the stall had. Something that could move. Hello? I called out. A baby's voice answered. It didn't sound natural. Just the same coo three times. Each repetition cut short at the end. A bad recording on loop. I yanked my pants up in a hurry and pressed my eye to the crack between the stall door and its frame. I knew what I would see there before I looked, though. The doll. The baby doll from Professor Wells' basement office, the one that had fallen on the floor on its own. The one that should have still been down there at the bottom of that corkscrew staircase. Who's there? This isn't funny, I shouted. The lights went out again. The bathroom retained an ambient glow for a split second after the bulbs went dark, like an impression left on your retina when a camera flashes. For only a fraction of a second, I saw the outline of a large figure standing behind where the doll sat on the floor. But then everything went black. I jumped to reactivate the lights. The sensor caught my upraised arms over the stall, and with a muted click, the light returned. The doll was gone. Part of me felt relieved, but it was quickly being shoved aside by the anxiety expanding outward from my stomach. I opened the stall and stepped into the empty bathroom. The row of dry sinks seemed to watch me as if they knew something I didn't. I didn't know what to do next. I still had to finish the job. Not my job, Stephen's job. 
If it had been my job, I probably would have gotten out and begged for forgiveness from my boss the next day. But it was Stephen's job, and he had specifically asked me to make sure I cleaned Wells' office. I mustered up some confidence and walked out of the bathroom. After all, dolls aren't alive, right? I swear to God, if you try to scare me again, I'll punt you all the way down the hall, I said boisterously as I returned to the basement stairs. The still silence that answered the echoes of my threat felt sinister. I looked over my shoulder and took my first step down the stairs. The next step came easier. The further I descended, the more comfortable I became. The basement was a small area, a fraction of the size of the hall upstairs, and the close quarters made it far less likely that something could be creeping around without me seeing it. As soon as I stepped off the staircase, something above me made a dull, metallic sound. I looked straight up through the staircase. The sound repeated, and this time I saw, through the stairs, something small and white fall from one step down to another. Again, it repeated. I backed away from the stairs slowly, edging towards the office door. I positioned myself behind the door so that once whatever was coming down the stairs appeared, I could shut it out. When it was halfway down, I finally got a clear look at it. I'm sure you've already guessed what it was. The baby doll was toppling head over heels down one step at a time like a slinky. It stopped on its stuffed rear end on a step at eye level with me. Its glassy eyes bore into mine, and a recorded cry started playing from its voice box. I slammed the office door shut and locked it. I clenched my eyes shut, shook my head, and opened them again. I knew I wasn't imagining the doll now, so I had to figure out how it was moving. I quickly determined that someone else must have been in the building with me. Someone with a desire to scare me. I had locked the front door after coming in, so either someone had stayed inside after the building closed that day, or someone with a key had come back. I immediately thought of Stephen. I wondered if he and some of his friends had gotten drunk and decided to play a prank on me. I had to admit, if that was the case, it was a pretty good trick. Maybe more appropriate for Halloween than New Year's, but a good trick nonetheless. I pulled my phone from my pocket, planning to call Stephen and listen for his phone ringing nearby. I dialed him, but the call failed immediately. I looked at the top of the screen and saw I had no signal. Probably lead in the walls, I muttered as I looked around the ancient basement office. Since I was locked into the windowless underground room, I knew nothing could come after me, so I picked up where I left off cleaning. I had the rest of the office finished in under 15 minutes. I checked the time, just about 8.30. I thought if I hurried, I might be able to finish the whole building before last call and maybe go get a drink to celebrate the new year. I cracked open the door and saw the baby doll was gone. I shouted at the stairs. All right, Stephen, game over. Your little doll was pretty cute, but I've got to get some work done. No answer. My confidence had recharged behind that locked door, and now it was beginning to leak out rapidly. I took a deep breath, exhaled audibly, and pushed the door all the way open. The other door, the one Stephen had said was always locked, was now wide open. Everything behind it was blanketed in darkness. Stephen? I asked. Was his phone call earlier a part of his elaborate ruse? I realized making me clean the basement office was a great way to get me downstairs. Did Professor Wells even care if his office was cleaned? My phone still didn't have a signal, but the flashlight on it worked. I turned it on as I left Wells' office behind. With my phone held out in front of me, 
I stepped towards the open door to my right. My phone filled the room with white light and drew shadows on the brick walls. The walls were lined with heavy pipes that were damp and shiny with condensation. I thought Stephen may have been right about the space being an old boiler room, but then I remembered Stephen had likely been pulling my leg the whole time. I bet he knew exactly what was in that room when he called me. When I entered the room, I came face to face with another brick wall about 10 feet ahead. My light created a long shadow on the right side of the room where I had expected to see a corner, but the space continued deeper around the bend. I held my breath and listened for any sounds that might give the tricksters away. Breathing, rustling clothes, squeaking shoes. But I only heard a drop of water fall from one of the pipes onto the concrete floor. I thought about leaving rather than falling into the trap that had obviously been set for me, but decided that would only extend the childish game. I walked around the corner to the right saying, All right, you can come out, but cut myself short when my phone illuminated another room around the bend. It felt like I had stepped through a portal from Wilbur Hall to Hogwarts. The dank chamber was lined with cases containing ancient-looking books with strange symbols on their covers, a novelly wand-like stick, various rocks and crystals, a few hideous figurines, some type of bowl on a pedestal like a birdbath, and, perhaps most disturbing of all, a collection of blades all stained with fluids ranging in color from maroon to black. Much like Professor Wells' office, the hidden space had been arranged in perfect, neurotic symmetry. But one of the smaller cases sat opened and empty. Something had been removed from that case, leaving a ring of dust behind. A doll, maybe? I wondered how and why all of those objects were put in this secluded space. Most looked like they probably had some historical value, particularly the books. I'm sure they were quite valuable. I found a much newer looking book resting on one of the cases and picked it up. I had to hold it open with one hand so I could hold my phone's light above the pages to read. It was a journal. Wells's journal. The page I had opened to read, I have completed translation of a dozen pages from Ritus Mortuorum. There seems to be little validity to the Romanian scholar's claims. He went on to write about some ancient ritual that was supposed to preserve souls for the afterlife. I flipped through a few other pages to see if I could find anything interesting. I became so immersed in reading Wells's notes I forgot about the prank I thought was being played on me. Finally, I opened to the entry I hadn't yet admitted to myself I was looking for. It read, After many attempts to provoke any spirit within, I now believe the doll is truly just a child's toy. Some electronic glitch must have caused the various anomalies reported by the parents. I've tried rituals from Venezuelan tradition incantations from the Norse lands, and even a Catholic exorcism as a last resort. Not one of these has provoked any sort of reaction from the doll. It will remain locked in its case until I can properly dispose of it. I could simply throw it away, but must always accept the possibility that I am wrong. I looked up from the journal at the empty case. Then I scanned all of the other cases again. There was no doll there. The one he referenced in his journal must have been what was in the empty case, and most likely the one that had been following me around. I started to doubt my theory about Stephen's prank. There was no way he had gone so far as to write an entire fake journal just to scare me. I suddenly felt trapped in that dark room. If I was truly alone in the building, then who had opened the locked door? The doll? 
I immediately recalled that shadowy aura I saw around it when the bathroom lights had shut off. Could this really be happening? I wondered. I hadn't seen or heard the doll since it came down the stairs, which meant it was probably still down there somewhere. I looked all around the room again just to be sure it wasn't lurking under one of the cases. It wasn't. That meant it was somewhere up ahead. To get out, to get upstairs, I would probably have to get past it. So I ran. I held the light in front of me as well as I could, but I put most of my energy into sprinting out of that secret room. I wanted out of there. I wanted to be as far away from those dark objects as I possibly could. When I rounded the bend, the heavy door to the secret room was swinging shut. I made a primal noise from my gut and lunged for the door, shoving it open just before it closed. It slammed against the outer wall as I passed through it and darted towards the staircase. The door swung away from the wall, revealing the doll. It had been smashed against the wall when I pushed the door and now it fell face first on the floor. The recorded cry came from it once more, but this time it was broken and distorted. It sounded more like a scream of hatred and rage. I pretended not to notice and started running up the stairs, taking two at a time. More than halfway up, well over ten feet above the basement floor, something reached up through the stairs and caught my ankle. I tripped and almost went headfirst over the rail. Fortunately, I caught myself, but the stumble made me look down. I saw the doll laying where I had left it, only now it had been torn open from the neck down. The head lay askew, attached only by a few threads. Stuffing was scattered all around the limp thing, and the broken voice box lay beside it, cracked. Whatever had grabbed my ankle released me, and the stairs beneath me creaked. I actually felt the whole staircase lean to one side as if an elephant had set foot on it. I dared not look behind me. I ran the rest of the way up, careful to keep one hand on the rail in case I was tripped again. I passed my cleaning cart at the top of the stairs and pushed it in front of them uselessly. Then I ran all the way down the long, echoey hallway. As I rounded the corner into the entryway, I heard a loud crash as the cart was knocked over. It was struck so hard a roll of paper towels landed just behind me and unrolled until it hit the wall. I made it out the front door, which locked automatically behind me. I didn't stop running until I was at the bottom of the stairs leading up to Wilbur Hall. I'm hesitant to write this last detail because it seems so ridiculous, but I swear I heard an angry growl behind the door as I fled. At a safe distance, I looked back. The giant clock turned, and I was reminded of my idea about the clock being a gigantic lock, about the building housing some enormous secret. Had that thought been a bizarre coincidence, or had some deep instinct within me known somehow? I didn't go out that night and I didn't return to finish the job. I went straight to the safety and comfort of home. Stephen called me late the next morning. Dude, what the hell did you do last night? You didn't clean, like, anything, and left the cart tipped over in the middle of a hallway? Listen, I said. It's gonna be hard to explain, but... But nothing, Stephen shouted into the phone. I asked you to cover for me. You, like, almost got me fired. Don't be surprised if they actually do fire you. That's fine, I replied. I don't know if I'm going to give them the chance. What? he asked. And Stephen, listen, you should probably look for a new job too. Trust me, you do not want to be in that building at night. Not as long as that Professor Wells is working in the basement anyway. Not as long as he sees fit to carry out his research. 
you made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.